This week we start a brand new sermon series about mountains of the Bible, and some of these mountains have an impact on individuals, some on an entire nation, and some on all of humanity. This first sermon is Mount Moriah, and it's a mountain that you may have never heard of, but has a significant impact in the history of the Jewish nation. The sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, April 3rd, 2016. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I'm very excited. We start a brand new sermon series today. We're talking about mountains of the Bible, and this should be relatively accurate if you can see the picture. It's a little faded out that says the distances. You can look online to see some of the distances of the mountains. And we're going to be talking about mountains where significant events happen. There's more than here. Um, we don't have like the Mount of Olives. We could talk about the Mount of Olives. Maybe we'll add that there. There's all kinds of different mountains where significant events happen, and this is not something new in history. There's uh, significant events happen on mountains all the time. If you've seen the movie, I think Everest is at the new, significant events happen that kind of shape culture and shape how people think. The one we're going to look at today is maybe uh, one of the most famous mountains you've never heard of, Mount Moriah. Is anyone, is that something that sticks in your brain if I say Mount Moriah? Probably not. If I'd say like what's the most famous mountain in scripture, you'd probably say like Mount Sinai. I think that would fit up there. Um, Mount of Olives, I think, would fit in there because Jesus goes there. Mount Calvary, of course, is famous. So these are significant mountains, but Mount Moriah has a rich history, which you're going to have to just hold on to for a while as we kind of get to the significant things that happen. So uh, when I was a kid, I always thought that people and, and God's people, once they kind of always ruled where they ruled, it was really a, kind of an eye-opening thing. I think, uh, when did it, Israel become a state again, like 1947, something like that? Like, this was a bit, I, I look back on history, I'm like, wait, like, God's people have not run Israel forever? Like, that's a surprise, and you'd think the same thing for some of the cities, when what's the most famous city that the Israelites had? Jerusalem. They did not own and run Jerusalem forever, if you didn't know that. So, it's got a fascinating story, and here's a picture of Jerusalem with its most significant, uh, if you ever see a skyline, this is looking from the east. This is the eastern wall. This is a cemetery over here uh, that you usually bury inside the city. That's the wall, and that used to be the Temple Mount. We'll get to that in a second. So the way that they got Jerusalem, it's kind of a fascinating story. It's the first original trash talk that happened in Jerusalem. So David is, uh, he has a divided kingdom at the time, and he says, okay, I want to get this stronghold because it's up in the air. It's on a mountain. And it's on a hill, so if you read Bible stories or something, it says Jesus, or they walked up to Jerusalem, no matter what part of the country they're in. So it's a significant stronghold, and at the time, it's held by the Jebusites, and David says, I really, I really want that property. That's like an ideal location. So he says, this is what I want to do. So he challenges his men and says, I challenge you guys to go and get into the city, and here's the trash talk that comes from the Jebusites. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem, to attack the Jebusites who lived there, the Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. So that's original trash talk right there. I'm not sure how they did that. And David thought, and they thought, of course, David cannot get in here. So David is fired up. You can imagine this passionate guy, and he gives this same speech saying, like, who are going to get the blind and lame? And Joab, and we just talked about Joab, Job is the one who says, you know, I'll go do it. So what they devise is they are going to go through a water shaft to try and get into the city. Now, this is a technical drawing. <laughs> there's David, there's the blind and lame defending the city, and then they're sneaking. So this one's a little more technical. 
There's a famous discovery, and we don't know exactly which water shaft that Joab used at the time, and, but it was a fortified city, and you can see a couple things. There's a natural drop here, which made it very difficult. They had the stone walls and the walls all around it. It's up on a hill, which made it difficult. But they sneak down this shaft, and the one that's most famous is Warren's shaft. Has anyone been to Jerusalem? This is the most famous one. I think you can still tour it. So they go in there, and it seems to be there's natural um, shafts that work into the ground up to the top near the water. So they crawl all the way in there. They get into the city. It's like the Trojan horse kind of deal. And they get into the city, and they take it from the inside. And from that point on, it is no longer controlled by the Jebusites. It's controlled by David. Okay? Now, which is the most famous of the hills of Jerusalem? Because there's more than one. Did you know that? So it's not like, like the whole town is like on a singular hill like Castle Rock or something like that. It's not like they're on a singular hill. Has anyone been to um, Rome? There we go. The city, yeah, city of seven hills. So it's got famous neighborhoods that are built on these seven hills. Seattle is the same way. I don't know how many there are. There's like seven or eight or something like that. And I thought, hey, I bet San Francisco is similar. So I Google. Hills of San Francisco, there was 40 listed. So I'm not going to name all 40, but there's a lot. So there's this idea that different things happen in the city. All of the city is not on this hill. Just this is on the hill back in the day. This is not a real picture, just for the record. So this is, I believe, a British guy who designated every evening after he worked. I can't remember his job. It was like train conductor or something. So he went and he made a scale model of the Temple of Jerusalem. And this is that same eastern wall that we just saw. Here are the grave sites. And now there's a golden, the mosque of the Golden Dome, or I can't think of what it's called, is in the exact same spot. So how exactly did they, like, move into there? There's an interesting story there, too. So David decides one day, well, he's king and everything's going well. He is now has this connected kingdom. He says, I'm going to count my fighting men. And does that seem like a big deal? Everyone's like, I, I don't know what to say on that one. It's not really a big deal, right? Do you assume that the military, that we... Our U.S. military has an idea how many fighters they have. I would hope so, right? And you go to the grocery store with three kids, and you leave with, yeah, and the right kids, right? you got to make sure they're the right kids. But you leave with three kids. You go swimming. There's the buddy system. So it doesn't seem like a big deal. But based on the reaction, he sends Joab out, the same guy. He's the same one who killed his son Absalom, by the way. So he sends Joab out, and he finds 1.3 million men. And David is really excited about this. But God is not. And a plague comes to the people of Israel, and 70,000 people die. 70,000, just put your brain around that, that's bigger than the city we live in. 70,000 people die, and God says, this is what I want you to do. Go and buy this land, the threshing floor, and sacrifice an oxen to me. So he goes up the mountain, and can you guess where that was? Mount Moriah which is exactly where the Temple Mount is. David owned that land, and that was the future site of the temple that David could not build, but his son Solomon built. So this is a significant event in all of history because this oxen was the first of like hundreds of thousands of animals that died for someone's wrongdoing. A thousand years earlier. A thousand years earlier, there was a different sacrifice on that same hill, and that's why this hill is so significant. And here's the story. So sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, 
loaded his donkey, and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. This is, of all like the narratives, just from a literary perspective, this is probably one of the most looked at, the most thought about, the most discussed narratives in the Old Testament. The creation one maybe is number one, but this would be number two because it's this beautiful narrative, but what's the most terrifying thing about it? I think it's terrifying. Is it, am I the only one who thinks this is terrifying? As a kid, I thought, okay, this is, wow, that's really great. Way to go, Abraham. But then you think, okay, I, I love God. Have you ever thought this? I love God. And Abraham loved God. Abraham ki- had kids, and I have kids. Could God ever ask you to go sacrifice a child? Has that ever entered your brain? And would you do it? What on earth propels him? And like, before you do anything, and before you sacrifice anything, anything of significance, I think you have to kind of weigh out the cost, right? I mean, that's normal. You weigh out the cost to say, is this, does this make sense for me, what I'm going to do? And you can think about just about anything in your life. So I'm on the school advisory council, sounds pretty important, at the middle school here. I meet four times a year, and it takes exactly, because I run the meetings, it takes exactly one hour of my time because I run the meetings, and at one hour, we're done with the meetings. So it takes four hours of my time, and it leads to good graces with the school, and I get to know what's going on at my kid's middle school. So it works out. I weigh that out, and I say, I think that's worth it. Not a big cost to me. You know, there's not a lot of prep. Uh, Before you do anything, you say, okay, I want to go, and I want to get fit for spring break or something like that. You have to determine, is it really worth the effort to get in shape? Or, Amy and I, we test drove a Sequoia uh, SUV yesterday, so our car is getting fixed. I've got a 2005 Toyota Sienna. It's a pretty hot mobile. You've seen it. So it's a silver mobile, and somebody lost a ski. While, I mean, lost, a, lost one of the chipped keys while they were skiing. I'm not going to let you know who. But, and, and he won't admit it, so don't even try and place the blame anywhere. So I, this person lost one of the chipped keys, so I have to pay $130 to go to the dealer to get the special keys so that they do it. So while we're waiting, I said, hey, let's go try out one of these SUVs. Do you know how much a Sequoia SUV costs? $57,000. So I'm just doing the math in my head, and I'm like, $57,000. So I have a couple options, right? You know, I could put that on the payment plan, like the 28-year plan, but they don't offer that. It's zero interest. I could do it in one year, $5,000 a month. That's not bad, right? And I could probably lower the payments with a kidney. So, I mean, like, this is all, it could work out. Am I willing to pay that kind of money for that SUV? No, I've already got a car and no one's ever going to steal it. I could leave the single key in the ignition running. I think people would be like, oh, he should shut this off. (laughs) Like, no one's going to steal it. So you've got to weigh all these things out, right, before you're willing to give something up, before you join a club, before you do anything. This actually happens to me all the time with church because people view... Um, a relationship with God is religion, saying, okay, I give this, and here's what I get in return. So it happens all the time. You could probably think of examples in your own life. But here's some examples from the past. Someone comes to me, and they say, okay, if I become part of your church, then do I have to give up this? And sometimes, uh, I had a guy who was coming to church for six weeks. This is in Washington. He was coming for six weeks, and he said to me, and I think I've shared this with you before. He said, um, I want to know two things. Number one, I had a twin brother. 
that died very early, uh, within a day or two of being born, he said, is my brother in heaven? And I'm like, okay, this is the first one? Like, what's the second one? Um, I, I, I said, I don't know. You know, I can, I can tell you that we have a merciful God. I cannot tell you 100%. And he respected that. I thought, okay. Whew. He said, I respect that. Okay. Here's number two. I have another brother. I'm like, great. But he said, my other brother is homosexual. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? No, actually, he didn't even say the Bible. He said, what does your church say? I said, well, I can tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says that there's all kinds of things um, in the drunkenness and stealing and you know, all these other things, and that would fit into the category that God says this is not right. I never saw him again. What was that one item? A non-negotiable. You know, there's certain things that people ask me to be like the SAC committee. They'd say, hey, can you meet for this accountability count on Sunday mornings at 10? I would say no, because this is a non-negotiable for me. If our kids have sports and it's right now, tough. You know, like this is a non-negotiable. Each one of us has our own non-negotiables. So my question is, which, which things do you think fit into your non-negotiables? Like what would you not be willing to give up? Sometimes, sometimes it's your money. Sometimes it would be a boyfriend or girlfriend. And, and what I mean by that is this, okay, you read in the Bible and it says, God says we should be generous and support. We say, okay, I get that. And then you look at your own life and you say, I don't really want to do that. God says that um, sexual relations outside of marriage are not okay. And then now we sit here and you have a boyfriend or girlfriend that it seems like they love you, right? Are you willing to have that conversation to say, I think this relationship is not right and we should get married before we would go on this? Is that a non-negotiable? Is a non-negotiable some other sin you're entangled with? Maybe you're addicted to gambling. Maybe you're addicted to prescription drugs as we just talked about. Maybe you're addicted to alcohol. Is, is that fit in the non-negotiable? You say, you know what, I want to be a Christian. I really enjoy this, but I don't really want to give this up. How in the world, how in the world do you go up a mountain when God says, go kill your son? You cannot do it if you look at God as just this moral thing, that I give up this for that, because it's not worth it. Is it? Can you, is it worth it? If this is what God, you can look at God one of two ways. One is that you bring something to the table to have this relationship, and some relationships simply aren't worth it. It is not worth, like, sleeping in a cardboard box to save my mortgage payment. I don't think it's with five people. I don't think it's worth it. Maybe wouldn't. You know, but it's not worth it, right? I, I'm not willing to do that and if you look at God like he's like the modern person that says God is warm and fuzzy, you'd say, well, God would never ask me to do this. How in the world do you ever go up this mountain? Yet here's the story. Jesus himself says to us, anyone who loves their father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus. He said, here's Abraham. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. What do you think is going through Abraham's brain right now? 
Like God made a promise to him that said, we just read it, I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to bless him through your son. He's 75 years old. It goes 25 years. He's 100 years old. He'd be on like Willard Scott's Smucker commercial, and now he's having a baby. And here he is, and he doesn't just say from any son. He says from your son Isaac, I'm going to bless the world. So Ishmael is now long gone. He's got one son, and God sees like 13, 14, and God says, take him. I want to kill him. So how does Abraham go up that mountain? Does anyone have any idea? Because it doesn't make sense. If God is really going to ask me this, I'd say, God, it's not worth it. This does not make sense. Because two promises are against each other. You said you're going to bless the world through my son, and now you're asking me to kill my son. If you think God is warm and fuzzy, this doesn't make sense because you'd say, God, if you really love me, you wouldn't ask me to do this. I think the only way that you do that is you look at the God of the cross and you see that we have a God that says, here's, here's what happens. Hope meets obedience. You cannot come to believe by doing things. You can look at the promise of God, that we have a merciful God, that we have a loving God, that he has always said and done what he is going to do, and then action takes place. Abraham was so confident in his Lord that he said, you stay here and we'll worship. We'll come back to you. And now it slows down. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up, so he's old enough to carry wood, which is... And he said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar. Now just imagine that. Then he reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. I think he heard him on the first time, just for the record. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, and he took the ram, and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering on Mount Moriah, where the temple was, instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. I, I can't imagine what things go through, but what collides right here? It's the, it's the idea of substitution. That on this mountain, in that same range, there's the Mount of Calvary that God said, this is, this is not the sacrifice. God says, here's the deal. I'm going to give my only son. And I think Paul is thinking of this when he said, how could God, as you think about the things that God has asked you to give up, how could God, who is willing to give up his only son, not be willing to give us all good things? So just... Just peel back on the things you're not willing to give up. I mean, just think about them for a second. Take an inventory. What do I not want to give up? As a boyfriend or girlfriend, some kind of relationship, you're saying, I, this is too much for me to come to God? Is there some kind of addiction going on? And you're saying, I, I just don't want to give this up. You're not going to do it. Just by saying, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, because God will be happy, because it's not, it's not worth it. 
And you're not going to do it if you think God is some warm, fuzzy God who just says, you know, because you're going to think God would never ask me to do that. Instead, we have a God who says, this is what I think is best for you. So take inventory of the things you don't want to give up. What mountain do you have to climb? If it's your money or your time or an obsession about your kids and you say, okay, God, I'm going to lay these on you. The only way I can climb that mountain is trusting. Trusting that I have a merciful and loving God, a God that cares for me, a God that says all things are working out for me, a God, as Paul says, if God is willing to give up his only son, how can he not? How can he not give you all good things? One last thing. Um, It's really easy to see God as just this moral, this moral God that we do the right things, and that's the last thing you want to do. We've got a God who says, sometimes the ask is pretty big. I think it is. If you really, if you, if something isn't that big of a deal, the ask is not that big. It's not a big deal to be on the SAC committee. It's not a big deal if someone says, hey, can you come help me out for a half an hour? That's not a big deal. And you have no problem to do it. God asks way more than that. It's not a big deal if you look at religion as saying, and say that Christianity is just this little thing. I got to show up to church on Sunday. That's not a big deal. It's not a big deal if God says, be generous with your offerings, and you say, okay, how about 10 bucks? That's not a big deal. God asks a whole lot more than that, doesn't he? God asks for devotion. He asks for a life. He asks for everything. And the only way you're going to climb that mountain, the only way you're going to climb that mountain is trust that we have a God of hope, just like Abraham, who's going to take care of all your needs. Amen. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of us wrestle with things. Uh, We wrestle with stuff that we don't want to give up. I guess that would be a definition of idol for us, things that we don't want to give up. Help us as we look at the story of Abraham and wonder how in the world he can go up that mountain. And we know uh, the only way that that's possible is of love, love for you and a trust that you are working all things to our good and knowing that uh, a hope breeds obedience, not the other way around. So we pray that as we make decisions these coming days and weeks of things that we recognize are contrary to your will, that those are things we can give up, we can push aside. And when we struggle and we fall down and we we can't do it, we know that we have a God of forgiveness who in hope and love has given up all things, including his son, to build this relationship with us. We ask this in your name. Amen.